0: the Digiday podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday.
1: And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday.
0: All right, so Tim, you had the conversation this week with Sarah Bruno, who is a partner at the law firm Reed Smith, and I'm curious why it made sense to have her on at this time of year. I feel like it probably has something to do with the California Privacy Rights Act, but would love to hear kind of why you wanted to have her on.
1: Yep, everything to do with the California Privacy Rights Act or CPRA um, for any listeners, you know, not familiar, uh, CPRA is the amended version of California's existing privacy law, the California Consumer Privacy Act. Uh, that's been around for a couple of years now, and so I wanted to have you know Sarah on to talk about what's different with CPRA, what um, compliance under CPRA. Looks like since it takes effect on January 1st, 2023, so we're you know about a little over a month out from this new privacy law taking effect.
0: Got it. And so I know California has been one of the states in the U.S. that's been very proactive about internet privacy laws. I'm curious you know, what these amendments might look like and then kind of what Sarah's take is on it um, holistically, if she thinks it's bound to be an improvement or not.
1: Yeah. So CPRA definitely strengthens the existing privacy law. It also clarifies some things like, you know, one of the big gray areas with CCPA has been the definition of sale. And it's something that's, you know, tripped up companies like Sephora. Sephora has been fined um, by regulators in California because Sephora didn't think it was selling data. But under the law of CCPA, um, by sharing data for advertising purposes, Sephora was found to be selling data. And so what CPRA does is it um, includes language now specifically to cover sharing data in a cross-contextual behavioral advertising case. So any companies who previously said, no, we don't sell data, um, but we're effectively using data to make money from advertising um, now have to be in compliance with CPRA. So that's one area where CPRA seems to clarify. But Sarah and I spent a lot of time talking about how there are still some other gray areas with CPRA that probably won't get clarified until um, the rulemaking process and regulations come out, um, hopefully sooner than later, because enforcement of CPRA starts on July 1st of next year.
0: Got it. All right. Well, it sounds like there's a lot to unpack. I'll let you guys get into it. Thanks, Tim.
1: Cool. Thanks, Kayla. Sarah Bruno, welcome to the DigiDate podcast. Thanks for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to talk about privacy today.
1: Yeah, a <laughs> lot going on in the privacy landscape. And as someone who's you know based in California, native Californian, mm-hmm. um, the one aspect of the privacy landscape that's top of mind for me at the moment is the California Privacy Rights Act, which will be taking effect on January 1st, 2023. Um, and it's not a necessarily new privacy law because it amends the California Consumer Privacy Act that, you know, took effect in 2020. And and Sarah, you know, given that this isn't replacing CCPA, but CPRA is amending CCPA, what are the most significant changes or introductions that CPRA brings about to your mind?
2: Well, how long do we have? okay we can cover some of them um okay so i think the there's a few that are really notable that clients have been struggling with and grappling with one um importantly is the opt-out for sharing for cross-context behavioral advertising um that is you know the The opt-out for sale was covered by CCPA and it had that broad language that um, defined a sale as either exchanging for monetary consideration or for valuable consideration, which was, I think, you know, trying to tackle what they're now tackling with the cross-context behavioral advertising. So a lot of companies have been chasing on that point in particular to either get contracts in place um, to try to confirm that it's not cross-context behavioral advertising, and to um, define exactly the scope of use of the data, um, or if if it's clear that this is what this company is doing and this is how we're exchanging data, they're implementing systems for that opt out, making sure the opt out you know flows down. So that's one big one, I think. Um, from my standpoint, another that I know clients have been dealing with is the the fact that we have to be more clear with the purpose for the data collection and and ensuring that the purpose is what the consumer would expect. So when they provide your data, their data to you um, as an organization, um, if for example they're buying a pair of shoes, uh, the data is used to facilitate that uh, the sale of that pair of shoes, and possibly um, if you're able to communicate that hey, we're going to also market to you, you know, as a result of you buying these shoes, you're going to now get emails from us, you know, and here's how you could opt out. Um, That would be likely be considered to be like compatible um, with that, you know, consumer's expectation, but use beyond that, you know, future use for um, other third parties. Now, clients are having to really think through why did we collect this information? How do we use it? And Um, do we use it beyond the purpose that a consumer would expect? So that's, you know, more of a thoughtful exercise um, that certainly clients are doing that now because their notices have to be up to date and they have to make sure that those notices include the purposes that they're actually using and and, um, anticipating
1: using that data. Got it. Okay. And, that first one that you mentioned, the addition of sharing, um, specifically in the context of cross-contextual behavioral advertising. But you know, now if you're sharing data, that gets covered under CPRA. You have to be in compliance with the law now in terms of providing notice and the ability for people to opt out. I mean, the definition of sale was like a huge gray area with CCPA. I feel like late 2019 into 2020, even you know now with the uh, Sephora fine. You know, recently, um, where Sephora interpreted CCPA and said, "Oh, we're Sephora. We're not selling data. We don't, you know, have to comply in the same, you know, way that maybe uh, companies who are selling data would need to." Um, and then the California Attorney General's office said, "No, you're selling data." And now CPRA clears that up by, "Okay, if you don't want to say you're selling data, that's one thing. But if you're sharing data," for use in cross-contextual behavioral advertising purposes, now CPRA applies to you. It feels pretty cut and dry, but this is the law we're talking about. I don't know to what extent things are ever that cut and dry. Is there any um, gray areas around sharing or like the addition of sharing or to what extent it applies to companies?
2: I do think um, it's eliminated the question that we have a sale. So certainly this, this um, implementation of the do not share component has eliminated all questions. So I do think it's made it easier for, frankly, companies and legal counsel within companies to explain to the organization and up, you know, um, up high, the C-suite, hey, this is super important. We need to figure out what we're doing with data. So Whereas under CCPA, because there was this, this a little bit more of a gray, I think it was more difficult for companies to chase on some of these issues internally. Um, and now, because we have the CPRA and we've got an agency that's enforcing the CPRA and we've got this clear definition um, or this clear requirement for this limit, um, this opt out for cross context behavioral advertising, I think at that point, um, we're getting more buy-in from the C-suite and from management to invest in um, these processes for data. And you mentioned the Sephora decision, and that was another one that I think allowed a lot of these internal legal departments to suddenly be like, look, this is important. You know, there's now decisions coming out of California as a result of, you know, somebody making a quick decision under CCPA at some point. Um, now there's more there's more thoughtful analysis with respect to the data flows and how they're being used.
1: And Sephora being, I think, you know, at least to my mind, the biggest example yet of a company who's been, um, you know, targeted, you know, by regulators under CCPA feels significant. Because I remember, you know, 2019, even 2020, a lot of the thoughts seemed to be, Oh, when regulators go after companies, they're going to be going after tech companies. It's going to be the big tech platforms or ad tech firms. I don't think a company like Sephora would have been high on really anyone's list because I don't even think Sephora has like a retail media network business where it's like, oh, well, Sephora is collecting you know, data and using that to sell ads. What is that indicate to you in terms of the level of enforcement around CCPA and what can be expected with uh, when it comes to enforcement for CPRA when that takes effect next year?
2: Yeah, so I think so the, the agency is well-funded. I do think we're going to see a lot more enforcement. I'm certainly hoping for a softer start, similar to letters being written, you know, opportunity for companies to defend than, um, you know, than we, we could imagine <laughs> there being. Um, but I do think we're going to see a lot more enforcement um, and more quickly than we did under ccpa At, with ccpa there was the right to cure there's no longer a right to cure i think that's going to impact a lot of the ability of the agency to enforce but also the response that co- companies are going to have um when they do receive inquiries from the agency with respect to how they're managing data
1: got it and that right to cure that you mentioned so for anyone in, in the audience who isn't familiar under CCPA, if companies were found to be in violation of the CCPA, they would have 30 days to correct that. And it was basically, um, you know, kind of like, oh, you dirtied the kitchen, just clean it up before I get back, and then you won't get grounded, kind of thing. That now goes away. That 30 day grace period goes away. So is there any, is it just like with that right to cure? gone that 30 day grace period is adjusted if companies are found in violation they don't have an opportunity to fix it before they get fined or penalized otherwise under these Yeah that's
2: right I mean I I think I no i can't we, you know, we haven't seen what the agency is going to do yet um but i can say just generally with ag enforcement typically there is the ability you know there's a letter there's the ability to defend explain i think the concern that that i'm grappling with with some of my clients is that we have this if it's anything um like other enforcement from regulators it it's you know, pulling a thread. So we have to be really careful. We may be able to defend that our notice is accurate, but what if they continue to investigate? Again, I go back to that purpose um, definition. If they start to find out that there's a lot of old data, for example, things like that, that you know, maybe companies are so busy trying to get that that opt out for the sharing in place that they're not thinking about the fact that they have data from 12 years ago sitting on some server somewhere. So. That's the concern I have for my clients is that, you know, we've got to get these obvious things in place, um, but we also have to make sure that we're doing things like deleting all data, minimizing data, considering the purpose. Um, That data inventory is is more important than ever because an investigation into some provision in your privacy policy could result in, you know, learning that you had a data incident five years ago and you didn't report it.
1: And so... The addition of like sharing as a category under CPRA, it seems you know as you mentioned that helps to clarify some things. Of if a company doesn't want to say they're selling data, fine. But if you know, it's a question of whether they're selling data. You know, maybe it qualifies under sharing. Um, with that, like, is this? I imagine that opens up CPRA's application to a lot more companies. Um, than CCPA did. Have you been seeing any sort of kind of compliance rush among companies to get in compliance about ahead of CPRI taking effect on January 1st?
2: Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, we mentioned at the start how busy it's been. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's been very busy. And I'll tell you the second, you, you also asked me in the beginning, the components of this, that Companies were really struggling with. We started with sharing. I mentioned the data management, kind of purpose management. The third is employee data, and the fact that that's now covered. So yes, I've been working with companies on CPRA compliance for close to a year now, if not longer in some cases. Um, But in the last two months, the trying to get those HR systems in place to deal with employee data has been a really big crush of work as well. so that's another important, you know, note for your audience just that that employee data is now covered by CPRA and that's a whole another consideration for an organization. And California is the the state, the only state that does that. So it's, it's a
1: lot. Got it. Okay. And then there's also with CPRA the creation of this new category of personal information, sensitive personal information, which is, you know, a subset of Uh, personal information category under CCPA. And and that includes, you know, things that I think are, you know, reasonable to consider sensitive, you know, personal information, uh, social security numbers and the like. But one potential, you know, gray area seems to be precise geolocation is one type of sensitive personal information. And I think probably a lot of marketers and media executives, ad tech and you know tech executives as well are familiar with like precise geolocation of okay that's latitude and longitude you know we can use that for targeting of ads or to see if someone who saw an ad went into a store but i don't know to like how precise the definition of precise geolocation is under the law is is there clarity around what is or is not precise geolocation
2: um well it's 1800 it's uh 1850 square feet foot radius so that's the that's the um definition that's been given uh but you're absolutely right that the latitude and longitude comment comes up a lot with companies and certainly that's you know often how a tech group thinks of it um and then suddenly we've got the square foot radius uh comment that we're dealing with um so yeah that's that's a big component um if you don't mind me, the sensitive information thing, you're absolutely right that that's a big change and um, that we've got this definition. What I think is also notable is that it's broader than the other state laws' um, definitions of sensitive personal information. So, um, and why that's important is because companies when they do their data inventory should be tracking because California actually has the content of consumers communications included in sensitive personal information. So um, you have to think about that, like again, on the employment side. um, And if you have a data incident now that's covered by um, the, the definition of sensitive personal information. So you have to think through, you know, if there's an incident where, Oh, it's just emails that were, you know, accessed and it's an emails of, you know, our marketing company. So, you know, it's not maybe a high risk. It's not like our HR emails were, were accessed, but you do have to think through, well, now that's sensitive personal information. Um, and you have to think that through, but also on the collection angle of that, um, race, ethnicity, and it actually says medical or health information. Um, whereas other States say medical diagnosis, and so that's interesting if you think like like your skincare company and you ask, you know, consumers when you're selling products, do you have acne or do you, you know, have rosacea or whatever it may be? I may not have ever gone to a doctor to have that prescribed and sort of diagnosed, but I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, yeah, I think I do. Suddenly that's sensitive information. If I'm getting ads two weeks later as a result of that, we have to think that through um, as to whether you you need to limit the use of that person's sensitive personal information. Um, I just think that that's going to be something again in the data inventory process con- companies should be aware of because it's not always you know exactly what you would think to be sensitive personal information. Um, some companies may not think a consumer saying, yeah, I've acne is sensitive, but in California, it could be.
1: Right. Yeah. And I mean, another one that um, I kind of stumbled on uh, or am you know, struggling with to understand like how precise uh, the definition of this data type is, is login credentials is another type of personal information. And I I don't know if that means just, you know, the email addresses or usernames, or if it, you know, means email address plus password, you know, qualifies as a login credential. Do you know if there's any clarity on that?
2: So I think it is email plus password. It has to be the ability to access. Um, I think I'm, I haven't looked at that, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is.
1: Got it. Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's been um, you know, this, all the activity around, you know, with the third-party cookie going away, supposedly, in two years, um, and, you know, Google's Chrome browser, the move towards, you know, email-based identifiers, um, data clean rooms as well, but, you know, really the email-based identifiers, and email, you know, is a category of personal information, not sensitive well, personal information. Well, oh, okay.
2: <laughs> I was going to say, so one of the other really interesting parts of um, the CPRA is that they have an exclusion for publicly available information. So if a consumer has made their um, personal information or or information available via mass media, um, then it's no longer considered personal information and it would be considered publicly available information, which is excluded from the definition of personal information. So that's super helpful when you think of social media platforms and what consumers are putting on social media platforms these days. Um, the question will be whether that's determined to be, um, you know, a, a public site. I would think if I have an Instagram page and it's public, then that's there's an argument that I have made my life public, and any information on yeah. there is therefore no longer personal information um, in California.
1: So you know, like for me, I have my email address on my Twitter so that any sources can be reaching out to me that way. But that's my work email, not my personal email. So that would be effectively fair Whatever
2: information you're putting on LinkedIn, um thinking about that. Uh so yeah, there's that's gonna be an interesting that really is also interesting for AI companies to get their hands around just because AI companies are um often (laughs) collecting a lot of data just from you know websites and publicly available sources. And so they may that may be helpful to them. On the other hand, um, somebody still has to be determining whether it would fall in that bucket of publicly available or not.
1: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back. One other thing that I'm curious about is, like, to what extent companies can get their own houses in order to be in compliance with CPRA? But you know, how exposed they may be to other companies. Like under CCPA, there was the designation of. Service providers, and then there were third parties, and the, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, um, you know, created the Limited Service Provider Agreement for companies to then, you know, use that to be able to, you know, have documents in place designating a company as a service provider, so that they could be sharing the data, but in compliance with CCPA. Um, but I think. There were some folks who were just like, okay, limited service provider agreement, great, that covers us, we're good. There were other folks who were just like, eh, I don't know about this. Um, Has there been any clarity with respect to the relationship with service providers under CCPA since the regulations have come out and you know there's been that regulatory activity? And does CPRA do anything to clarify that further, or does it introduce any ambiguities?
2: Yeah. So um, the CPRA. I, I, I don't necessarily think that companies had a hard time with the service provider um, definition as much as as you would think, just because a lot of companies were dealing already with the processor controller distinction um, out of GDPR. But certainly it was. I mean, I'm, I'm probably I, I'm probably just blocked a lot of the pre-ccpa days <laughs> from my memory but um you know at that point companies were willing to to add some provisions to their agreements to cover that off um and move on down the road so to answer your question though the cpra has I think added ambiguity with respect to they've added this provision of Contractors. Um, So now you have to make a decision as to whether there's a service provider or contractor. Which there's not much clarity um, as to where that what that distinction is. Um, So that's been difficult for some companies. But but there is a delineation of what you need to have in your in your agreements. So companies are putting that in their agreements, and we're hoping for more clarity with respect to the distinction. Um, And you know, I think a lot of these companies are at this point, it's fast and furious. I mean, getting these agreements updated for CPRA has been, you know, a constant, constant um, work. But on the other hand, maybe not as much as you would think, just because we're now used to it with these data processing agreements. So it's, it, it, you know, at one point, no one even knew what a data processing agreement was. So now we've, everybody knows what those are. Now we're just adding provisions to it.
1: Contractors versus service providers. You mentioned that's a little vague on what the distinction is but do you have any like is there even like a high level level of clarity into like what's the difference between a contractor and a service provider
2: yeah so a contractor is a company that you make data available to um and a service provider is a company that processes the data on your behalf uh that's not super clear, is it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, like, I feel like in both of those cases, you're making the data available to a company.
2: Yeah, it's, we need more clarity on that. So um, I think, I mean, the the going consensus is they're trying to cover a gap where you've got parties like um, postal services and payment processors that may be using a consumer's data across different for different clients, right? So let's just say I make a purchase. Um, I may decide to use, um, you know, certain postal carriers, uh, services to, to deliver that to me. Well, that put, because I have an account with that postal service, they're using my data to send me those shoes. Um, but they also will be using my data to send me, you know, cookware from another company. So maybe that's what we're trying to get at is that we've got these, these parties that are going to be using my data across different, you know, uh, customers of their own, but I am buying a pair of shoes from shoe company and shoe company is delivering those shoes to me. And so they're going to share that my, you know, some of my information with that contractor, but that contractor may already have my information um, as a result of me buying cookware from another company. Does that make sense?
1: I think so. so, I'll listen to it back.
2: Yeah. So the service provider is supposed to be processing data only um, at the instruction uh, of the company and for the purposes identified by a company. Let's think about that postal service. That postal service is processing my data. Yeah, for that for that purpose. But they also have my data already as a result of me having an account with with that postal service. Makes sense. So we think maybe that's what the contractor distinction is getting at, but we need more clarity from California on that. And it's something that, you know, like I said, there's there's clarity with respect to what we need in agreements, but companies are having a hard time determining internally that distinction.
1: And so where or when do you expect to be getting that clarity?
2: Um, I've heard rumors early 2023. I mean, I... It'd be great if we got clarity on some of this stuff sooner. Um, the regulations seem to be close to final, so you know at this point we're just left with what the text in the in the act, um, which, as I said, isn't super clear.
1: Okay, so I'm already getting flashbacks to yeah, this, this time p- in 2019. Yeah, because <laughs> you know with CCPA. There were the vagaries that you know we've talked about, and a lot of people you know, were saying, "Well, the rulemaking process will get you know clarity there when the regulations come out, which you know was set to be within six months of CCBA taking effect." Um, regulations came out, and then there was some clarity. I don't think clarity to the level that some had hoped. And now it sounds like with CPRA, as much as CPRA provides more clarity on things like sharing of data for cross-contextual behavioral advertising purposes, there are still, feels like a significant amount of ambiguities or ambiguities that could potentially be significant depending on what enforcement looks like. And so is it just a question of waiting for those regulations now? And is there because CPRA takes effect January 1st, but then enforcement doesn't start until July 1st. So there's this six-month window in which the law is taking effect, but the AG's office and the agency you know, now charged with enforcing privacy law in California can't be enforcing it just yet. Is that kind of a period in which that clarity can come to light and companies can update their compliance or will companies still be on the hook because the law will have already taken effect. So enforcement may not happen until July 1st, but that enforcement can hit companies for their actions on January 1st.
2: Yeah, so um, that is all accurate, everything you said. And I don't think companies are resting on their laurels thinking we have till July 1 um, because there's also this you know, look back period, as you've said. So companies are aiming everyone I'm working with is aiming for Jan 1 with the understanding that the regulations are still open in some places and certainly not, not final. So um, doing the best we can to get you know to a place where we feel like we're close um, and then making some tweaks in the in the new year based on regulations, I think it's defensible too. If you for example, we're still waiting for more guidance on automated decision making technology and what's gonna be required there. And so if you're using that technology, um, that's not maybe a focus right now for, for all of your <laughs> compliance efforts, because we're still waiting for more guidance. And that would be our defense if you know something com- comes out. Um, but similar to some of these other provisions that are new, um, that could be a potential defense, which is we were still waiting for the regulations to be final on this piece. And so we were focusing on the other parts that we had to get to. Um, I think that's that's some comfort, but I, like I said, I know most companies are aiming for Jan one.
1: Yeah, and it seems like there may be some comfort in that. I think it was a few weeks ago. The I don't remember if it was the AG's office or the enforcement agency, but kind of you know put out some you know language, basically saying like you know we may take into account like when the regulations are available and what you know time companies had to. Um, sit with the regulations and update their compliance with the re- regulations. But I think there were people who looked at that and said, well, they're saying they may take that into account, not that they will be required to take that into account. And is there, obviously, it's hard to say with language like that, and we haven't seen any actions yet to give a signal one way or the other. But given the regulatory landscape and what enforcement of ccpa has been like do you have a sense on how the agency may act on you know would it or what you know to what extent it may take into account um the timing of the regulations and their availability and any um actions it may take against companies
2: i don't have a sense for that other than i would think um I mean, I don't really have a response to that other than what I said previously, which is, I think, um, I do think we're going to see a lot more activity um, from the agency than we have under CCPA. Um, I I would like to think that they would be kind (laughs) with respect to the fact that companies are trying to get in compliance with a regulation that's not finalized. Um on the other hand, the regulations are, you know, if they're pretty flushed out and the changes are getting to be less and less each round. So, um you know, the agency could have a potential, you know, statement there that they said, well, yeah, they weren't final, but you knew this was happening. You know, you we we gave you, you know, all of this language, you knew it was happening and you're so far off. Um um, that you're you're saying the regulations aren't weren't final is not really, you know, a good defense. So,
1: and with like CCPA, I think it's been the highest profile, you know, U.S. state privacy law, um, but it's not the only one. And a lot's been made of this, you know, patchwork of privacy um, laws in the states, but then also internationally as well with you know GDPR. And other you know privacy laws that have been passed since GDPR, but in the states, um, to what extent does CPRA create something of a minimum threshold where if if companies are in compliance with CPRA, then and you know maybe it's if they're taking the strictest possible or most conservative interpretation of the law, then that'll make them in compliance with other state laws. Or to what extent are there significant differences between CPRA and laws passed by other states like Colorado, Vermont?
2: Yeah, there, there are differences. So, you know, just complying with CPRA is not going to get you there with Colorado and Virginia. Um, uh, Colorado and Virginia have different opt-ins and opt-outs. Uh, they have clear requirements for, um, DPIAs, Data Processing Impact Assessments, um, and opt-outs for targeted advertising, which is, again, similar to what we have here in California. But um, there's there's more layers to those laws. They also have clear requirements for processing agreements um, that are different from what CPRA covers. So uh, while you could have some comfort if you aimed for compliance with CPRA, that you're close with the others, you will not be compliant with the others without doing more.
1: There have been industry efforts to create compliance frameworks. Um, you know, like IAB Europe obviously has the transparency and consent framework. That hasn't gone over so well because you know regulators said, "Oh, this actually isn't in compliance. We don't have to get into all that." But in the states, there's been the U.S. privacy framework, which is getting updated um, to the global privacy platform, and then there's the Limited Service Provider Agreement, which is getting updated to the multi-state. Um, I don't remember like the rest of the ac- the acronyms MSPA, yeah. but it's basically a tool so that okay, you use this framework and Companies can then use it to be in compliance with the various states, multi state being in there. But I don't know to what extent there's been any sign off from your regulators saying, yes, this is okay. And it feels like companies, I know executives have, you know, voiced concern over to what extent they can trust some of these industry tools, um, given what's happened with the TCF in Europe, that they're concerned about do we adopt this? global privacy platform or the MSPA, and are we? can we be confident that we're okay with that? Has there been any clarity in terms of uh, these you know, U.S.-based privacy frameworks and to what extent they are or are not in compliance or how regulators would look upon them?
2: You mean in compliance with, with California or just...
1: I mean that's kind of the question yeah, right so, like in compliance with California but then with Virginia with Colorado with
2: um, Yeah you know that dis- that analysis we're all hoping you know anything we can get any clarity um that allows for sort of more uniform compliance across all of these different state laws is something that you know we're we're hoping but you know I haven't dug into that MSPA um I would imagine it's going to be very useful as a tool um, in order to try to massively comply with a lot of these different state frameworks. But I I haven't looked into that. Um, But I, you know, I do think the goal, you know, certainly is for these frameworks to align. But so far, what I'm seeing is each state has unique requirements that you have to, I mean, like I said, the definition of sensitive personal information is different in these states. So you've got to do your data inventory <clears throat> and check the boxes for each state and then consider what compliance measures you have to do. I mean, if you're collecting sensitive information in one state, you'll need an opt-in. If you're collecting it in another state, you have to decide if you're inferring characteristics about an individual and then have that limitation. I mean, it's it's a lot it's, and it's brutal for these companies. So it would be, you know, if we could have kind of uniform framework and if some of these, these um, frameworks are allowing for that, would be helpful but i can't i mean i think we're still gonna have these nuances until you know there's a federal law that addresses this
1: right and there was the bill in the house over the summer for a federal privacy law that never made it past the house um i don't know to what extent any reasonable person thinks there's much hope for a federal privacy law at least not certainly not this year i don't even know to what extent next year what's your read on it
2: similar um you know, the political climate obviously dictates this a lot. I think what's going on um, with the Dobbs decision, I think things like that may, may trigger additional thought with respect to consumer privacy um, and a need for there to be more consistent framework across you know all states and federally. But uh, I have not heard anything to indicate that that's like papered at this point. Got it. Okay.
1: So to wrap up, like with CPRA taking effect, January 1st. Do you feel like, you know, purely from a a US lens, that the privacy landscape is coming more is getting streamlined? Or is it getting more complicated right now with CPRA?
2: Oh my gosh, I love that question. <laughs> it's it's getting so complicated. <laughs> it's gotten very complicated as a result of CPRA. I mean, CPA CPRA started this complication. Um, Virginia, Colorado, Connecticut, Utah—all these states have come along, but their their laws are more similar um, to each other. Uh, whereas CPRA is this unique kind of beast. That has complicated privacy significantly for organizations in the U.S.
1: So there's the global privacy control, which is um, kind of like heir to the Do Not Track idea of you know one tool that people can use to set an opt out um, across you know companies across websites if they want. It would also like give them the ability to manage opt outs on an individual basis as well if they don't want to you know. Do a blanket opt out. Um, the AG's office in California has, you know, said okay, global privacy control like that should be companies need to respect that under CCPA. I think CPRA makes that even more explicit. And again, it, it feels like okay, global privacy control um, that should make it easier for companies to be in compliance or manage compliance, especially if it applies to. Other states laws, but I feel like anytime I assume, oh, this thing will make privacy compliance easier, that I'm probably wrong in thinking that what's the significance of the GPC being part of CPRA?
2: Yeah, so I think um, the significance is that I think it is, I think you're absolutely right that it is kind of meant to make, um, make some of these compliance measures more helpful um, by forcing there to be a technology solution or technical solution that companies can implement. Um, it forced a lot of these players yeah. to develop, you know, these players that have been assisting with the dsar compliance i won't name any companies but there's some companies that have been you know notable for trying to develop tech solutions for compliance with ccpa um those same companies are now developing you know technology and and the ability to to recognize these signals so i do think um it's helpful that it's included in the regulation it was certainly a bomb when it came out just because it was like, what is this and how do we do it? I mean, many internal legal departments are still trying to figure out, you know, what is this and how do we do it? (laughs) Um, And luckily, like I said, we're getting, you know, insight that there's solutions being developed um, and hopefully will be in process by Jan 1. Um, And I think at the end of the day, this is, you know, consumers do want the ability to control their information with respect to the use for this you know, targeted advertising across different platforms. So I, I while California dropped this bomb by including it, requiring it, other states have followed um, with, you know, language leading in the same direction. And it's forced a lot of these these tech companies to figure a system out, which I think consumers are going to be happy with if they care. If they care, they're going to be happy. If they don't care, they're going to continue to get the ads that they want to see or that, they, that they, they're happy seeing. Um, as a result of that purchase of shoes, so. Right,
1: and and like you mentioned, I don't know if there are any global privacy control tools like currently in the market. I feel like they're in development and so it feels like that, Kind of goes back to the, what feels like the theme of this conversation. Of okay, there are these things in motion, but a lot of it still remains in motion. The dust hasn't settled, and sure, this law is taking effect in you know a little over a month. But you know, by the time this episode airs. But there's still all of these things, yeah. um, that are kind of in question.
2: Absolutely, and you just mentioned by the time this episode airs. I mean, I feel for you. You're gonna have to <laughs> get this thing out quickly because there could be something new in two weeks um, that we're all talking about. But yeah, I would hope by the time this episode airs, we have at least one solution. Like I said, I'm I understand that we've got a few in the works, and you know, one that may be actually, you know, out there. But um, that's just another. Um, it was similar with CCPA. Uh, at this point, you know, under CCPA, a lot of companies were still trying to figure out service provider and, and having that sale, that, that link, you know, do not sell, sell my personal information link on their site and figuring out those flows. Um, it's just that we've, we've gotten used to it you now here in California. So.
1: Right. And, and with CCPA, like so much was up in the air that I felt like, Everyone working, you know, in the data and privacy field, lost their holiday vacations that year. Like I think, or at least we're doing a bunch of calls while skiing or exactly. Well, and are you expecting that to be the case this year?
2: Yeah, I mean, I haven't taken a vacation in some time, (laughs) Um, (laughs) and I'm not really expecting a ton of time off around the holidays. Yes, so but I will say, doing the data thing. Um, data incidents often occur around the holidays, um, and so it, even before CCPA, privacy has always been a job that's been busy around the holidays. Um, you know, we we often see a spike in data incidents around times where people are more relaxed and maybe making mistakes or whatever it may be that to enable, you know, intrusion into
0: their
1: systems. Okay. happy season for (laughs) everyone
2: happy Thanksgiving Um,
1: yeah exactly Uh, on that note Sarah you're obviously very busy and will continue to be but thank you so much for carving out some time to talk to us
2: no thank you Tim it was good talking to you
1: and thank you for listening to the Digiday podcast please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it you can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like and we'll be back next week with another episode